This episode was originally a live stream on YouTube. You could find out about all my content and how to follow and support me at erichunley.com. I hope to hear from you. And now, on with the show. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. All right, and we're live. I am really honored to have a legendary figure in the field of deception, Dr. Aldert, Ald, nah, Dr. Aldert Vray. I'm so worried about the last name that I'm messing up the first name. Please tell me I'm somewhat accurate on it now. Yeah, you're accurate on both. Aldert Vray, you're good. That sounded very good. <laughs> Thank you well so much. And I apologize ahead of time. I have been mutilating your last name for a while. Well, many <laughs> people do so. English talking people uh, call me Fritch. So it becomes. Uh, yes. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. IJ, I'm, I'm Dutch, and IJ is a vowel in Dutch. So it's I. And it's funny, though, because when you corrected me, it's like, oh, not only can I get it right, but it's a lot easier to say. <laughs> it is. I know. Yeah. You're so, not the other one. I'm not the first one who made a mistake. <laughs> awesome. Now, you, um, why I wanted to have you on, I've had a, a ton of viewers who are saying, Please get Dr. Bray on. He, you know, you've written a lot on deception, but where I think you're very famous is that you're, you actually have run, I guess, psychological tests on different methods. Would that be a fair statement? Um, yeah, we test different methods. Yes. We run experiments, seeing okay. what methods work. Yeah. And we, we also design our own methods. We test our own methods. Okay, so oh, so you test the tests themselves, or test the? Yeah, we test our own stuff and test what other people do. Okay, fantastic. Now, I think you're one of the only people out there who's doing that, or there's there's not a lot of that going on. Is that true? Yeah, there are more people doing it. Um, yeah, how big is the field? I don't know. This is hard to say. It, it goes in the well, in the hundreds, we think, who do research in this area. Okay, what well, you? What brought you into it? Uh, reception, it's, it's uh, well, a long time ago. Um, when I was a student in Amsterdam, um, a, a lecturer who I liked, his wife was a school teacher. And his wife said that in that class where this was teaching, there were black and white children in the classroom. She said they don't get on very well. And I think that is because they show different nonverbal behaviors. And that was his, he told me that. Then we thought maybe that also works like that in police interview settings. So then we simulated a police interview setting in the Netherlands, where I'm from, with black and white citizens from the Netherlands. And we uh, standardized interview setting and we videotaped them and we coded their behaviors. And we saw indeed massive differences in behaviors between the black and the white Dutch citizens. For example, the black citizens, yeah, yeah, that's the cross-cultural differences. The black citizens, for example, they look far more away from the speaker than the white citizens do. The black citizens, they made far more movements than the white citizens do. They made more stutters, different, all kinds of differences. Then we had follow-up studies in which we used actors. Actors were uh, white and black. And we let them uh, show the behaviors we found are black and white behaviors. 
-hmm. So in one setting, for example, uh, they looked more away from the interviewer, that's black behavior, or looked more at the interviewer, that's white behavior. Uh, and quick show question. Yeah. And sorry to interrupt. Oh, did the interviewer themselves make a difference? Like, did you do it with black interviewers and white interviewers? Yes, black and white interviewers. That also made a difference in okay. that the black interviewer also made more movements than the white interviewer. The result of that is that everybody interviewed by the black interviewer made himself more movements because behavior, there's mimicry in behavior. Oh, the mirroring. On. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we had those videotapes now with the black and the white actors showing uh, black and white behaviors. We showed those tapes to police officers, white police officers in the Netherlands, and we found that the skin color had no effect on how suspicious they thought the people were. But the nonverbal behaviors had in that when the actors showed black nonverbal behavior, they made a suspicious impression. That is because that's behavior that the white uh, police officers don't expect to happen. Everything that is uh, out of the ordinary is seen as suspicious. So then we, we knew that black people make a suspicious impression because behavior they show. But then the next question is indeed, how do lies and truth tellers behave? So that's yeah. how I came to the deception field that I'm in now. Okay. And then I started, sorry. Oh, no, um, sorry, I, did, I th thought you were done with your thought. Go ahead. Well, then I started with uh, looking at behaviors as everybody did, late mm -hmm. uh, 1890. Um, but then I moved on to speech in, say, 2000 or something. And there's more in speech than there's in behavior or deception. Okay. And Interesting. Okay, so you went from there, and did it matter? Like, did you have white actors performing the black behaviors and vice versa as well? Yes. To see if that, if that triggered? Yeah, no, no, yes, but they were instructed. So the white actors showed white and black behaviors, and the black actors showed white and black behaviors. And did that make a difference in the results as well? Oh, yes. The moment they made, uh, they showed black behavior, that looked suspicious. No matter who did it? No. Yes. Okay. That's that's fascinating. That is and fascinating. That could explain why uh, there's far more, at least in Europe, probably in the U.S. as well, the far more, more uh, stop and search on the street with uh, police. Far more black citizens are included in that than white. This could be a reason why. The behavior that black citizen shows is different than what white citizen shows, and that makes a suspicious impression. That's interesting. Now, did you study this only in um, Netherlands or also in UK and maybe US? Because I imagine there would be differentiators in, quote, black behavior in the different countries, especially yes, with this southern black influence in the United States, for example. Yes, I think it makes a difference. We only did it in Holland, in the Netherlands. And uh, at that time, many black citizens in the Netherlands, they came from Suriname. That was a former Dutch colony. They came from there and came to Holland. So they were not really assimilated in the Dutch culture. And that wow. may make a difference. I don't know. I don't know. But it may make a difference. If you really uh, live in a mixed culture, in a mixed society, may well be that those differences will disappear. I don't know. Could be. Okay. And uh, oh, here we go. Somebody in the chat said, good it's a good question or point. Okay, so what is black behavior? Um, well, the, the, the striking difference is a difference in gaze. 
It is very white Caucasian behavior to look other people straight into the eyes. It's mm. far less common in many other cultures. For example, also in the in in, in uh, countries like uh, uh, Turkey and those kind of countries, uh, not at all. Even in those kind of countries, it's seen as impolite behavior, certainly to authority figures, to police officers. People are authorities. You don't look them to the eyes because that is rude. Challenge. Whereas in white Caucasian uh, society, it is seen as suspicious if you don't do that. That's yeah, that's an interesting point. And that's also a common misnomer, I believe, in quote body language or lie detection. We think that if somebody's looking us straight in the eye, they're being honest, but many yeah. body language, I'll say experts, but they, they would say no, often it's quite the opposite. They're looking in your eyes to make sure that you're buying the story that they're pitching. Yes. Yeah. Actually, um, if you look at the, the, the research, there's no difference in gaze behavior at all between liars and truth tellers. A lot of research on that. And if you, you just have a look at all these, these studies, you don't find anything. So sometimes it may happen, other times not. But indeed, it could well be that liars sometimes look you more into the eyes. Uh, indeed, they want to see whether you still buy your lie. And also they try to convince, persuade you. If people try to mm. convince somebody else, they also look into the eyes. So there are two reasons why, indeed, you could expect lies to look more into the eyes of the interviewer than uh, truth tellers do. But the common belief is that liars look away. And there's no evidence for that at all. Right, because some are just intimidating, especially when you have an authority figure. You could be challenging them or anything else. I, I could totally understand that. That brings up a, a really, I guess, fundamental question. And I've talked to different uh, deception people on it. Is your goal to find a lie or deceit or is the goal to find truth? And would you agree it, it makes a difference what your objective is to start? That makes a difference. Uh, what we do is uh, veracity assessment. So you try to distinguish between the truth and a lie. Uh, but certainly methods are only good if they are indeed accurate in both lie and true uh, detection. A method that's good at lie detection but poor at truth detection is not a good method. Indeed, you need to be good at both. You need to distinguish between the lies and truth others. That makes a method a good method. Not just good at detecting lies. That's only part of the story. Okay, so and, um, like uh, I'm mentioning the behavior panel, I have them quite a bit. Their one of their fundamentals is they want to quote baseline. Yeah, and their you know thought is you know find out, listen to the person, find out what is true, or you know in the sense that yeah they're comfortable, they're talking and things like that. And I think they quote Joe Navarro a lot that in looking from deceit is looking for discomfort from the baseline. Yeah, what are your thoughts on that? basic philosophy um baselining in itself is good mm -hmm. um, if you use it well and it's very often not used in the way it should be used um, what do people always do a baselining is to control for the same person individual differences mm -hmm. so you look at the behavior of a person in one situation and another and you look for differences that's mm -hmm. what they always do control individual differences but you also need to control our situational differences right people talk about topic a or topic b that has, has an effect also on their behavior so you need to control also the situation and that very often goes wrong in baselining they control for the individual but not for the situation if you don't do that baselining is rubbish 
Oh, okay. So now I, I've had a person talking about the same topic, then it works well. That's where you need to do the same topic, same person, same topic. That is proper base lighting, not the same term person talking about two or three different topics. And that's what nearly always is done. It's rubbish. Okay. Okay. So I, I've had a polygra uh, polygraph, anti-polygraph crusader, if you will, who mm -hmm. actually served a couple years in prison for teaching people how yeah. to beat it. He yeah, was yeah. a polygraph examiner and he, oh. according to him, the polygraph is a rubber hose. He's not a fan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And he was his view, and I think this may be in the same path, was that if you're talking to somebody and you're saying, what's your name, what's your favorite food and everything else, that's fine. Okay. But when you ask a highly stressful question, like, did you do something to that person? And I'm, I have to be careful what I say because YouTube will go crazy. But, you know, something particularly vile that that's going to cause a stress level to come up just by being accused or associated with something. Yes. Is that what you're talking about versus somehow baselining in that subject area and then getting more targeted as you go? That that need is a similar situation. Yes, yes. Uh, well, if they carry out the polygraph test uh, test more accurately, they use different type of uh, control questions. Not so much talking about your hobby, that kind of thing. That's most people say that's rubbish. Uh, but they use different type of control questions, which still indeed has the most the same difficulty, because still you have indeed the control questions are not as arousal evoking as mm -hmm. the, the the real questions are. Okay, now on that note, because technology is changing all the time, so I imagine you're studying new things as they come in. Uh, Chase Hughes of the Behavior Panel had a a question he wanted to put out there and it was he'd love to know your views on modern pupil dilation metrics and ai vocal modulation not stress analysis systems yeah it's um i don't know exactly the new stuff in that in, in the new the latest equipment uh in, in general i'm not a fan anymore of non-verbal line detection mm. and uh, there's several reasons for that uh, one reason is that we know from research that speech works better. We know from research speech is more revealing than behavior. Uh, we know that because there's, there's research, not just cherry picking one or two studies, but look at the overall studies done in that area. That showed, it's called a meta-analysis. One of them showed that uh, verbal cues are more diagnostic than non-verbal cues. That's the first. The second meta-analysis shows if you let people listen to somebody, they are more accurate at line detection than when people watch somebody. That's the second meta-analysis. The third meta-analysis is if you teach, if you train people verbal cues, they improve more than when you teach them uh, non-verbal cues. That's also a meta-analysis. So that all gives the impression speech works better than behavior. There's also something else. That is... Um, if you interview somebody, more in interview settings, if, if you interview somebody, you do that in order to try to collect information. That's the reason why you interview. Interviewing is extremely hard to do. One of the difficulties of interviewing is, while well, listening to the answer, you need to think, what's the next question I'm going to ask? That is mentally very, very taxing. If you now also, on top of that, need to look at somebody's behavior, people can't do that. People cannot mm -hmm. and observe behavior and listen to speech and think about the next question. So those guys who look at behaviors, 
their interview uh, quality goes goes down because they cannot end listen very well and think about the next question. Mm-hmm. I think behavior lie detection could be okay, but only do that in situations that people don't speak. Because if people speak in interview settings, listen, it works better. Okay, this brings up some interesting interesting stuff here. Um, because I have a previous guest, uh, Chase Hughes, actually I brought up earlier. He has uh, an entire matrix breaking down behavioral things that by themselves don't mean anything. But when you're mm-hmm. adding them together, they could be something. But he spends a lot of time watching video. So mm-hmm. in the live setting that you were just describing, oh, absolutely. God, that, that, that's a nightmare trying to keep up with what's your question going to be? Are you listening to the answer or not listening or whatever? Mm-hmm. But on the replay of the video, yeah. is it possible that maybe there's a little bit more to the nonverbal? You know, like somebody who could just sit there and now do nothing but turn the sound off, look at whatever they're doing and and following it there? Uh, there may be more than nonverbal if you look at more than one cue at the same time. Mm. I think that, you're, you're, that probably works better. Um, but of course, what you need to know is um, it only will work if you have something, a certain pattern of behaviors mm-hmm. that liars, most liars will show all the time. And truth tellers will not. And mm-hmm. that's not really what these people do. And very often do is say they look at the videotape and say, well, uh, I can see in that behavior there is lying. Behavior A, A, for example. But in the next interview, the next person look at behavior B. And then a C. And then a D. And they don't tell beforehand when, when to look at A, B, C, or D. So you can't, it's not standardized at that school. And that, that's a big problem. Oh, and, and that's that's a fair point. And to defend them, you know, to be fair, uh, Chase will be the first one to say that even if all these clusters are together, that doesn't mean it's a lie. It means go back in there and ask some more questions. Something yeah, about you, that area is maybe making them uncomfortable. You, you Maybe you should dig a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can also do that just by listening to what somebody says. And you can come okay. to the same Well, that starts to get into statement analysis. And I've been on the impression that you're not necessarily a fan of statement analysis as a, um, I'm, I don't know if I can call it technique. I know technically all these are pseudosciences um, or, uh, or more of a system. Um, pseudosciences is a good word. It's, I'm an academic and I look at research in areas. Um Statement analysis, there's only one of them, uh, it's called SCAN, scientific uh, content analysis. SCAN, mm-hmm. that's a, a known method. Mm-hmm. There's no evidence that it works. There's several studies done by us, by others, and nobody finds anything. There's one SCAN study showing that it works. That's what the stand, SCAN supporters use. That's Driscoll 1994 or something. The difficulty, that's the problem that study is, they used real-life uh, interviews, but they didn't know the ground truth. They didn't know who the suspects were lying and truth-telling. If you don't know that ground truth, you don't know how accurate your system is. And that's the only study they are showing support. And that is not a good study. So if you take out that study, there's nothing. There's nothing to show that it works. And that's what, that's being a scientist, that's what I'm trying to do, to see, indeed, if there's any kind of empirical evidence Mm-hmm. For that stuff works. Okay, this is a different kind of scan. It's actually from the uh, no, it's from the audience. Um, 
um, this has also been put on my locals page. So everybody, unstructured.locals.com. Please um, go there and get questions in. What do you think of the meta protocols that intend to analyze different expression channels like scan R, six channels analysis system to detect dishonest behaviors? I'm not familiar with it. I'm not. Neither am I. And scan R, I don't know what it is, but it's, I think I answered the question about about behaviors, the the, the limitations of, of that. Um, certainly in real life interviews, when people speak, you don't need it. Just listen to speech. It's far better. But you listen, if you listen to speech, but that's, by the way, that's a good thing of, of scan, of course. It indeed is speech related. You try right. to get more information of people. That's why, that's why you interview people. Try to get information. So that's why you need to, to, to focus on, on speech, because that's how you get information, not by behaviors. Okay, and I know it is fascinating because it's. I understand that people ask questions because it sounds so fascinating. Sure. For example, we we know from research we know that uh, to give a very silly uh, cue, truth tellers give you more information than liars. Typically, that that's mm-hmm. a diagnostic cue, but that sounds boring. If you if you publish an article saying that, there's not a single TV channel that will, will call you say, "Well, let's have a talk about that." But if you do something about behaviors. The whole world comes to you. It sounds also fascinating. Typically, what happens with behavior is that the liar shows behavior that mm-hmm. he is not there that he shows or can't control. And you have to be extremely skilled to detect it. So it sounds mm-hmm. absolutely magical. But it is, it is fiction. Because there's no evidence that it works like that. There's nothing there. There's no technique out there that really works in that way. It can show you, okay, if you look at those patterns again and again, you will find something. It doesn't exist. Hmm. Okay, so I guess that's the quandary because um, scan, as you put it, that one study didn't prove it, and you had another one. It's not. Is it the practitioner versus the system? I, I, I'm, and I'm asking because, like you mentioned about the um, the lie tends to give less information. That's definitely in scan and statement analysis both. In the sense of when they're telling a narrative, you look at the amount of time spit it, spent on each part of the narrative. Mm-hmm. And there's a tendency to where someone who is deceiving would say, okay, I did such and such and such and such and such. And then the question area, they'd be like, oh, and then I went home. So mm-hmm. they kind of, they, they breeze over it. So if you break it all down and just literally look at the word counts, the yeah. area in question or whatever, they tend to kind of you know, it's sort of zip through that in, yeah, yeah. in their words. And so that kind of yeah. matches up with what you were just saying. Yes, it does. Although that's more spe- specific and there's no research demonstrating that, that indeed it works like that, but it comes to the same conclusion. Truth tellers give you more information on liars. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I think there are, there are other verbal lie detection techniques out there, um, mm-hmm. but there are far uh, less often used by practitioners. You got something called CBCA, criteria-based content analysis. Um, mm. That is far more more support for that than for scan. There's quite a lot of support for that that uh, CBCA. It also has another advantage. For mm. CBCA, we know what people are looking at. The 19 different criteria. Everybody who uses CBCA is looking for those 19 criteria and looks for all, all of those and gets a kind of a, a, a CBCA score at the end. So you look at all 19. Scan is not clear how many criteria there are. 
And the scanned people, they don't look at all these criteria in all these statements. So they say, this is a lie because criterion one is present. The other time they say it's a lie because number three is present. It goes all mm. over the place, not standardized. And that CBCA is standardized. You look at exactly the same 19, different people will get to the same conclusion because you look at exactly at those, you can exactly see, okay, that's where the differences are. That's far better. Then the okay, so it's a standardization um, yeah. deviation. And I'm, I'm really wanting to ask you because, you know, we're talking about, you know, very highly respected method out there and you're highly respected. And I always get into that quandary of, okay, we've got one person, both are brilliant coming forward, but there's a conflict. Is there a chance I could have you on with somebody who does scan or statement analysis to discuss it? Well, you could, you could. I mean, <laughs> would you be willing? Because uh, I would love oh, to set that yeah. up. Yeah, and yes, I'm willing to do that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, that would be awesome. And I wouldn't even do it as a live. I'll just do it as an interview, and you know, to keep things, you know, less hectic. Slides <laughs> are hectic. But at least for scan, at least we, we know to some extent what uh, Sapir is the man who started that, what he's looking yes. at. But then many other people doing things, and that's even not know what they're looking at. Because, for example, right. here in the UK, we got these experts in court, uh, CBCA. Oh, no, 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 we don't use that because we see all kinds of disadvantages of it. Okay, fair enough. Mm -hmm. What are you using? And then it kept quiet. Nobody says what they are doing. So that, that's, even, that's even worse. So I prefer mm -hmm. that people say, I use this, and this is my method. Those are the 12 things I'm looking at. That's better. The people are just vague, and many of them are far vaguer than Sapir in what they're using. Okay, so... You would agree then it's, it's a case that you got to be careful not to throw out the baby at the bathwater. Like any of the methods, there may be something to them, but we probably have to have a little nuance and, and mitigation to what is being studied. Yes, yes. And that speech is good. But give you one more problem with scan. Scan is that uh, what you do uh, initially, you tell the suspect, uh, write in your own words all you remember about the event. Some of that, that's a question. Okay. That, is from, that is, from a memory perspective, a very strange question, because it's impossible. It's absolutely impossible for you and for me to write down everything I remember, everything I remember. It doesn't work like that. It's far more complicated. To get the information that's in your memory, out of your memory, is a very complicated process. And by just asking one question, write down what you remember, it is completely ignoring that. So that's, that's, the idea is nice, but the, the, the execution is wrong. What would you what would you recommend in that setting? In, in all seriousness, what would you have them write down, or would you have them write it down at all? Would you? Do I it would. Verbally? You need a need a proper interview setting in which you really give the person the the the, the chance to really recall information that's in his memory. That's a very hard task to do, and the two reasons people never ever give you all information they know. They never ever do that, mm -hmm. and uh, one reason is these are conversation rules. For example, if you ask somebody, uh, what did you do last night? Well, mm -hmm. if you get an answer that's longer than 10 words, you start thinking, what's the person doing? Well, it becomes far too detailed. We don't do that. Of course, you understand, you realize in a police setting, you have to say more than 10 words. But how much do you exactly need to say? Do you need to right. say, well, I can tell you, six o'clock, I, I opened the door with my key. I opened the door. I put my mic in my coat. But that, that goes on forever. So you don't know how much you need to say. That's one problem. So you don't know how much you need to say. So you really need to raise people's expectations. And the second is, 
people can't remember, can't can't uh, recall all information that's in the memory in a, in in one instance. No way. You need all kinds of methods which are out there in order to enhance people's memory recall, and that's what you need to get a proper first statement. That's what you need to do. And the methods are out there to do it, but of course, it's far more complicated than what Scan oh, yeah, does. There's a problem with that. I can see I already see a problem though. How do you elicit the information without injecting? Because I think the goal is just to say, hey, write down everything you remember as best you can. So that way you're not injecting into the conversation any kind of views or lifelines or anything else. Because is it possible when interviewing somebody, you can shape the narrative just simply by the way you're asking? That's a good question. Um, if you interview somebody properly, it will not happen. But you need to know how to interview somebody properly. Indeed, you should not ask all kinds of leading questions and should not ask all kinds of questions that put the information in people's in, in the interviewee's mouth. That's wrong. But you certainly can ask other type of questions that are not doing that. I guess the, best, the, the safest method is mm-hmm. to ask, um, for example, what... One of the things we, we, we um, examined and worked is just ask first people indeed, tell me all you remember, mm-hmm. in all detail you can remember, and so forth. And then we let them listen to a very short fragment, we call a model statement, in which somebody gives a detailed account of something. Mm-hmm. Very short, less than one minute. And then we say, tell now your story again, but now keep into, in mind how much detail that person gave. Tell the story again. That leads to far more details. Because it raises expectations. People, when they listen to that, that example, they now start to realize they have to give so much detail. If people just ask to give detail, they don't know how much they need to say. Because just asking is instruction. And the model statement is an example. And examples are easier to follow than instructions. So that's one thing you can do. You can just need say, okay, before you write down, this is an example. Some kind of detail we want. That already gives you more information. Okay. Uh, could another method be to say, so what happened last night? You know, which is vague and it's not injecting. It's just, it's just saying a time and they give you whatever they give you and you note it. And then you just go, okay, um, you said this, well, what happened next? Or can you tell me more about what you did there? Like when they said, uh, I went to the store and got gas or what have you. Um, would that have been say, hey, did anything happen at the store? Do you remember anything about the store? You know, something like that to yeah. get them to narrow in. Yeah, this is, not, this is a good question. Um, our research showed that that's for lie detection, not as effective. Because if you hmm. do that, also liars are now going to include information. If you just ask a very open, open question, you tell me all you remember. And we do that in different formats. So do that after the model statement and so forth. But we see, indeed, the truth-tellers give you more information than liars. Liars are, are withholding information, and they're mm-hmm. almost expecting that. They think, okay, uh, I can give you more information, but you need, you need to ask me first. Because they're not, they're not really willing to give more information. There's something else going on in the mind of liars and truth-tellers. Right? The, 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 the truth-tellers, their purpose is to tell it all. To tell all the members they're willing to do it. They find it extremely hard and difficult. That's the difficulty you have. It's very hard to tell everything that you remember, but they're willing to do it. So if you help them with them, they will give you more information. The liars, of course, don't have that. The liar strategy is to keep things simple. Because the less they say, 
the less you can check, the less they say, the less uh, uh, they have to remember if you ask a question next time. So all kinds of things they are very reluctant to talk about. That's not exactly what the difference is. So if you now start asking specific questions, okay, tell me more about this. Yeah, well, then indeed they will do that. But they volunteer not to do it. So therefore you get indeed less information from liars because they just withhold that information, thinking you will ask about it. Okay, the, I, I hate to throw a wrench into it, but uh, everything pops into my head and I, I just, um, I'm scatterbrained. What about the fact that if, if I say, did you kill your wife? In statement analysis and body language and all these, the the answer that you want to hear is no, yeah, I didn't yeah. do it. Yeah, no, no. Which is, by the way, the shortest possible amount of information possible. And yeah. many would say that a liar would typically deviate. Why would it? Why would you ask me that? I my my wife. We love each other. We just had an anniversary. All of our friends say we're wonderful together. Mm. So I, I'm I'm asking because I do, and maybe I'm reading everything wrong. But I feel like in this case, truth is short. You know, no, because I don't know what happened. I I don't know even know what to tell you. I wasn't there. I I didn't do it. It wasn't me. That's going to be very very short with a lot fewer details. Wouldn't it well, that, you know, the question you shouldn't ask a question. Did you do it? You should ask a question. What did you do? Tell me exactly okay. what you did last night between six and nine. If that's the time of the murder, tell me and let the person tell. Okay, and so I'll push back and I'll say I watch TV. Uh, I don't remember what I watched because, especially if they're asking me something two weeks ago, I can't tell you what the hell I did two weeks ago. I'm being truthful here because I have a very poor memory, and. You know, if I did do something, I'd probably have more associative details through the evening because something stressful happened. But a lot of my life would be like, I probably went home or probably, well, I think my wife and I are watching this particular show. Um, I guess yeah, I'm, I'm sure we, we had, I don't know what I had for dinner. I mean, that was last week. What did I, you know, see what I'm saying? That, yeah, I don't know. Saying. Yeah. But if it, things happen a long time ago, of course, it makes it more difficult. There's no doubt about that. But even then, people, uh, if you really try hard, people may well be able to remember all kinds of things, even okay. in the, those kind of days. But indeed, it, 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 it's harder to do. Okay. But that's indeed, uh, but also, for, of course, what you can do, but the very successful lie detection method is to say, um, okay, uh, you say it A, B, C, and D. Um, okay, now try to give me information about A, B, C, and D that I can check. That's a very good one. That works very well in line detection method. Eh? So indeed, uh, what you will see, what you will get the differences. For example, Truthteller will say, uh, then um, I went to the library, and now you ask about it. There's a, there's a camera. There's a CCTV camera on top of the mm -hmm. library. Look and you will see at 3 or 4 o'clock that I entered the library. But that is now a, a verifiable source. Mm -hmm. And we know that Truthtellers give you more verifiable source than liars give. Hmm. Okay. Um, I have uh, Dr. Wood here. He's saying, are there intentional liars and unintentional liars? Um, there are intentional truth-tellers and unintentional truth-tellers. Not for liars. Lie, a lie is always uh, intentional. Something is a lie if you think yourself what you say is not true. That's a lie. If you okay. are mistaken, you say something that's not true, it's not a lie. It's just a mistake. It's an error. Ah, no. There are some people, though, I, I hate to say it, that that 
I don't know if it's just a behavioral thing, but I've come across them where they will not tell you the truth to save your life. I don't know if they just enjoy toying with you or whatever. And obviously most of it's innocuous, but they just, they will never give you a straight answer. Have you come across that type of person? And how would you detect somebody like that? If I had to say everything out of their mouth is suspect. No, we just do research. So we don't, um, these are kind of individual cases, maybe specific type of people. No, research doesn't, doesn't address that. No. No. Okay, and how how effective, and I know we're crossing over to interrogation and things like that, but how effective is deceit in detecting deceit? And, and by that I mean I mean, what would you say that if that um we talked to one of your neighbors who said you were crossing the street at this time? Um that's very risky. It can be bluffing. It is the point is that the, 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 the liar could well know it's not true. If the liar indeed wasn't there, for example, and you start bluffing, he knows that you are bluffing. So you make your own situation. The truth that I made will be, I don't know, maybe it's some kind of mistake, not a liar. So bluffing is not, is not a good tactic at all. No. Okay. And then a pushback on that is uh, Dr. Wood saying, so habitual lying, AKA or pathological liars don't exist. Well, they do exist. I wouldn't know why they won't exist. I, I think they do exist. As long as you realize yourself, you say it's not true. That that makes it a lie. Hmm. Okay. Mistakes, mistakes are not, are not lies. Okay, now how... Um, okay, somebody's bringing up some good points here. Um, how effective are liars at finding liars? As an example, the FBI hired Frank Abagnale after he spent some time, mm-hmm. and he is a con person. And he, you know, has been, I feel very helpful for things like realigning how ATM machines are built and things like that, because mm-hmm. he's got his mind twisted in a way to where he's always looking at an angle. Yeah. yeah. How, have you done any studies with them? I, I hate to say, you know, liars checking out liars. Yes. Uh, no, there's no research on that. <clears throat> there's research on um, how liars think liars behave. Or how, how prisoners, there's more prisoners, how prisoners think liars behave and how laypersons believe liars behave. And we know how actually behaviors are according to research, and the prisoners are more accurate than the laypersons are, and indeed knowing these cues. So there's more insight from prisoners. That, that is the only study that's slightly related to this. And that makes sense. I think that a person in prison has more at stake in getting things right just for pure survival. And may live in a world where a lot of deceit is going on and, and may well have experiences with being fooled at and, and that kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, now could, on that note, while we're talking about lying and why and whatever, I have a question from Gavin Stone in my locals on structure.locals.com. Folks, please join it. I can think of loads of ways of detecting deception, but what would you say are reasons for a lie? Reasons for a lie uh, to gain some kind of advantage. Mm-hmm. And it could be uh, for yourself. It could be for somebody else. It could be uh, materialistic. It could be psychological. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. And I think that Lena Sisko, who I've had on, has like a four-part matrix where 
Um, lies are to protect yourself, protect someone else, to yes. make yourself go forward, or to destroy somebody. I think you had some sort, some sort of variant like that. Okay. Very interesting. Yeah, okay. that is. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, I wanted to bring up uh, a tool that is being used by some folks I've had on. I think I was telling you about it a little bit ahead of time. They're called the uh, Behavior Panel, and two of them, Scott Rouse and Greg Hartley have created something called a liar's loop. And I mean, you study deception and everything else. And this is a system that they came up with in terms of how to question or deal with somebody who may be deceiving. And I just kind of want to run it by you and, and see what your thoughts were on it. And the way the liar's loop breaks down is... It's kind of in two parts. There's five components of it. They have, you know, the trigger, which is kind of like, hey, this is um, this is the con- uh, motivation to lie. Like, what is actually going to cause somebody to lie? You know, what about anything? And then we start to go into the loop where they have fabricate, and that's the actual construction of the lie, and they have it written as omission, commission, transference, or embellishment mm. as the types or whatever. And then they go into the deconflict, and that's the to analyze and proof the lie. Like, okay, mm, I'm telling a story here. I better have um, some way to you know mitigate any kind of challenge to it. Then the pitch is the actual delivery of the lie. And then last we have the uh, defend, which is to protect the lie. And Right after that, they go right into either fabricate or deconflict, and it's really deconflict, pitch, defend. That's the loop. That's the cycle, and mm-hmm. there may be a fabrication in order to deconflict the uh, lie. Like mm-hmm. you tell something, and they go, "Well, wait a minute. Um, I have a receipt at this store," and so then they have to, go, "Oh, well, well, no, I did stop for cigarettes," and on down the line. I was curious what you might think of this as a methodology. And it's not necessarily using body language. It's also using evidence or, or anything else. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the thesis is that you just keep picking at it and that spin will get them to spiral out. Um, I'm, I'm not aware of this. I need to see more about it to give a real uh, opinion about it. Um, mm-hmm. It looks to me that it has to do with uh, some kind of strategy yes. that's in the mind of a liar. That, that's a good approach. Uh, strategy is important. The strategies of lies and truth are usually different. And mm-hmm. if you uh, now realize that, if you realize what's going on in the mind of a liar and of a truth teller in an interview setting, you, I think, will become far better at lie detection. And to me, this looks like a, a strategy-based type of, of coming into the mind of what happens in the mind of a liar. That's good. It needs to be tested where it works that way. That's the next step. But the idea that you want to know what's happening in the mind, I think that's a very good first approach. And we know that, for example, that's one reason why um, verbal cues work better than nonverbal cues. Um, if liars and truth tellers use a nonverbal strategy, they do the same. They try to uh, suppress nervous behaviors and to replace mm-hmm. it with something else. 
They try to look into the eyes, don't fidget, that kind of things. Leave that out and replace by something else. Um, they're good or not good at it, but that's the same for lies and truth. So they are successful in that or not, but the same, the same strategy. Uh, verbally, it's completely different. The mm-hmm. truth teller strategy is to tell it all. The lying strategy is to keep it simple. Mm-hmm. And that is, if you ask the right questions, give you different verbal answers. Mm-hmm. For example, liars uh, don't want to do, they don't want to give you any kind of incriminating type of information. So they don't like to put themselves uh, at the location of the crime. Right. Voluntarily. Well, that's something you can use in interview settings. Certainly, if you have some information about it, and you know, for example, I don't know, that um, the person was at a, a shopping mall or something. You got some evidence that the person was at a shopping mall. And then just ask the person what the person was doing that day. The chance is very high that he or she will not mention that shopping mall because that is now exactly what the problem is. Or maybe mention the mall, but not the shop he went to and, 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 stole, and, and stole something. That's what lies usually do. Mm. And you can that in interview settings by asking some kind of questions what do you do and don't provide that type of evidence piece of evidence that you have and what you will see is the truth and the stories are far more consistent with the evidence that you have the liars stories but you also will see that liars then sometimes start changing their stories because mm-hmm. they start to realize halfway they ask these questions maybe they know something maybe they know that I was in the shopping mall let's not change my story and let's say I was there. So now you get the kind of inconsistencies in the stories itself. That's very often uh, deceitful. Is that always the case? Or because I always thought it was a misnomer that, you know, the the proper thing is if you're going to tell a lie or whatever, you get your story, you get it straight, and you yeah. stick to it. No matter what, you don't deviate from your yeah. story or you're going to look bad. So, yeah, that's that's one reason why we know, for example, liars are neither more consistent than truth hours. But it depends on what the consistency is. Eh? The liars will tell you the same story again and again. But truth okay. do, they go back to the memory. If you ask the same question again, they go back to the memory and remember okay. it differently. But the difference, if you, you get now different times, you get to need some omissions, some uh, additions. Sure. Typically, the, 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 the major changes that somebody uh, said uh, he wasn't in the shopping mall that day. Now, for certain, he says he was there. He now remembers he was there. That, that kind of large differences. And that is the result of the interviewees know, thinking in the interview, they know more. They cut something here. They know something now. They have some evidence that I was there. So now the lie changed tactic. First, he, he just denies all kinds of incriminating evidence. Now you start thinking, how can I have a truthful alibi knowing, thinking they have that evidence? Okay, but there's okay, so there's some nuance to this though, because I'm I'm thinking of the mall example, right? And I know if I'm telling the story of the day, maybe I'm only gonna hit the high points just just naturally. I might not remember something that's just a that I do all the time or whatever. Like mm-hmm. if I go to the gas station every day and I get a cup of coffee, or or maybe I just get gas that day and I don't even think about it because I went and I went to the store. I happened to stop by the gas station to get some coffee, but I didn't, I don't know. I didn't really remember that step. Maybe because I do it all the time. Then I go to the mall and then you ask me again, well, wait a minute. I have a credit card receipt that says you were at this um, gas station. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I do get a cup of coffee every day. 
is that a type of thing that a truth teller may be doing and, and adding more details as they go or or omitting things? I'm, I'm just curious. They, get, they certainly will add some more details as you go. Of course, it can well be that they can't remind or some kind of in the things they've done. That's absolutely true. But it happens more in the deceptive, in the by liars than by truth tellers. And certainly, if you have something like, it's not so much that people uh, went to the, 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 the some, some, some petrol station, but they did something else. They went to the shopping mall in a certain shop and they looked around and they, they stole something. Something mm-hmm. stolen there. And that is a different type of story. But that's okay. more than just walking in and out of the shopping mall, so to speak. Eh? Okay, okay. So then the 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 liar, the, the um, omissions would be probably closer to the question at hand versus other events that are tangential and not necessarily relevant. Would that be a... Yeah, well, uh, yeah, sure, that part, that part of day, that time of day, indeed, but, but he was doing, and then there he was. He doesn't want to put himself there in that shop. At least the tendency right. is not. So that that's that's you can ask questions about that. Withhold okay. the information you have about that, and then we need you need to ask many many questions about the person. You need to really rule out all kind of alternative uh, he can give. So really, everything needs to be ruled out. So by the way, this is hard. Yeah, hard. It's I know interviewing is extremely hard, and live texting is extremely hard. But if you do it the proper way, you will get somewhere. Not okay. many people use that is just not leading to anything. It's a hard job, I know. Oh, wow. So, okay. I, I, if you could design the course to train an interviewer, what what would it look like? I mean, just general. I mean, obviously, it'd be very difficult to get in the weeds. We only have a few minutes left. But what would be the primary focus? The primary focus is. Ask the right questions. Listen and ask the right questions. That's all the focus. Other than uh, going to the mind and explain to people what's going in the mind of the lies and truth tellers, and that different questions will trigger the different strategies. So the truth tellers is the tell-it-all strategy. So all kinds of things you ask, they will nearly always give you more and more information. Because this... Mm-hmm. Each step, if you ask the same question, we need not to ask the same question in the same format, in different formats. For example, you can ask somebody, okay, you told what you did last night between, uh, I don't know, last night. Um, tell me that again. But now start at the end. You went to your bed. What happened just before that? That's reverse order technique. That leads in truth tellers often to new information. Because you start now thinking about the event again from a different perspective, different angle, gives you new information. Very often not for liars who believe this guy have a trick. He wants to know, but then can get my story straight. So the liars now trying to think, okay, I told you ABC, I do now uh, CBA in that order. So he may or may not be able to do that, but certainly what's not in the mind of the liar is to add new information. And that's very yeah. often the, 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 the key to truthful in stories is in all these kinds of stages you do, you get more and more and more information. And the liars stay far more flat. Okay, I've heard that too. And also what you will do if you then, because uh, we, we also, not often, we give some training to, to uh, practitioners and then we have these, these live experiments. So live uh, lives and truth tellers come in and then and in front of the class tell the stories and we do the interview settings. And um, lives very often say, well, this was pretty good because we kept our, our story consistent indeed, but it's exactly not what we're looking for. We're looking indeed for additional information 
And they don't give that because they think the you want to see consistency is in the mind of the liars. They find it extremely important. They need to be consistent, give the same story again and again and again. And if he doesn't ask me some questions, I will give him the answers. Let him ask. So if you ask the questions in a very open-ended way that you don't key to the liar what you're interested in, the liar is not going to give you the information. The truth teller will, because the truth teller will tell all he remembers mm. eventually. Okay, and that made me think um, I've heard that a good way to trip up, especially somebody who may be a sociopathic syndrome or, you know, very, very convincing is reverse chronological order can sometimes throw a story. Like, okay, so what happened yeah, with that again? Yeah, yeah, that's what I said, the reverse order technique, yes. Yeah, that's that could, could work. The problem is it's very hard to do for everybody. It's also very hard for others uh, to do. Uh, so you get less information. So you certainly don't look for omissions. You don't look for information left out in reverse order. They told you in normal order, because that's very normal. You don't look at whether people find it difficult to do. But the best cue is to look for additional information. Okay. Um, good question here. How is it affected when a person is not speaking a native language? Um, that's a good question. Um, could, for example, reverse order. That technique, we've done one study in which people uh, spoke in a, a second language, and then reverse order doesn't, doesn't work at all. Reverse order is difficult. In a difficult language, a second language, it becomes far too difficult. So then, indeed, it doesn't work. Um, probably is lie detection easier in your first language, speech-wise, than your second language. There's no real research on that, but that's my, my hypothesis. It will be easier. Okay, and uh, somebody brought up a, a technique here. Uh, creative liars will lie about the occurrence, but use as a fallback to something embarrassing, say that they didn't want to admit it first, but remain totally innocent of the crime. I'm not completely sure the wording of that question, but there's something that um, is called chaff and redirect by, I believe, Greg and Scott call it that. How do you watch out for that in your question, or are you familiar with it, where you'd be like... Um, yeah, oh, I was smoking weed. I know I've got a bad, you know, where, where they start to confess to, shall we say, minor things to get you to bite on that. Do you understand what I'm talking I, about? I know you're talking about. There's no research on that. That kind okay. of uh, stuff. There's no research at all. Okay. So I can't and, uh, somebody was asking, what are your thoughts on the read interviewing techniques? They've been around for a uh, while. They're around for a while. Uh, I don't think they're particularly good. They're not good for getting much information. They're certainly not good for lie detection. Uh, the normal, the other information gathering style, it's the opposite. Eh? Read is called exaggerated interview, interview style. The opposite is information gathering interview style. Uh, works far better. And then, again, not, not just one study, but loads of studies. Information gathering and exaggerated are now compared to each other. We know that information gathering leads to uh, more information. It leads to more true confessions. It leads to uh, fewer false confessions. And it leads to better lie detection. And that is based on all the research in that area. Information gathering interview style works better than the re-technique. There's no doubt about that. Okay. And the, would it be fair to say that an interviewing style technique, oh, I'm trying to think of a way to say it. To just go in just wanting to know what they're going to tell you without trying to reach a conclusion. I, I, I'm wondering, do we get fall into the trap of 
were looking for a particular result rather than just looking to get them to answer questions? Well, that's indeed a problem, that you need to be uh, open-minded. Indeed, very often you see when something goes wrong, the interviewing goes wrong because the detective believes the person is guilty. And if the person doesn't uh, confess, it gets very annoyed about all kinds of things and all kinds of oppressive techniques will happen. You need to be open-minded. It could well be the person you're talking to is innocent. So always have that, that point of view. And we know, certainly, if you, even did, you became in the beginning about lying truth detection, it's, it's for the truth tellers, they give you more information if the situation is comfortable. It's very hard, as I said earlier, it's extremely hard to get all the information that's in your memory out of that memory. If you're now in a stressful situation, you really, you will shut down and you really can't remember anymore some things that you otherwise could. So what you need, the situation needs to be extremely comfortable. If that's the case, you will see the truth teller can help you out with all kinds of information. The liar is far less likely to do that. So then you get the differences. If you put both of these innocent and guilty suspects in a kind of oppressive interview style and technique, yeah, they both will shut down. But the truth tellers as well. Interesting. Do you ever watch like um, interrogation videos? And I'll, I'll name one in particular, which I always thought was just so brilliantly done. And back to the behavior panel, they just covered it recently. Um, Colonel Russell Williams, former colonel who was a uh, serial killer in Canada. There's um, an interrogation video with a, a detective and him in the room just asking, oh. you know, the questions and the manner and everything. I didn't know if you've ever watched any of these. No, no, I have not seen it. No, no. I would be interested to watch that. I would be interested okay. to watch a, a good interview. Uh, very often the ones you can watch are, are not good. I guess that's why they are there. Um, certainly also, for example, all kind of TV series that, that interviewing there is typically very poor, what they do. But of course, you need to, to, to hurry up, so to speak. It needs to be entertainment, but that's, that's all very poor interview styles. Okay, I'll but definitely send it to you later. I, th I think it's good. I mean, I could be wrong. I'm not a pro. But, you know, first thing is he established a comfortable relationship with the suspect. That's good. That's good. He was very respectful, no, yeah. you know, never pushed him. He never deviated in any way. He just was calm. And there, there's so many layers to it. It's it's amazing. I'll, I'll definitely share that. And everybody, you know, check out the behavior panel's coverage of it, too. They did a great job. Maybe um, in your program we have sometimes discussion about uh, Sharf. Hans Joachim Scharf. Have you ever heard Scharf. of Scharf? Scharf. S C H S C H A R F F. Hans Joachim Scharf. He is fascinating. Scharf was a um, interrogator in World War II. Oh, the Nazi. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's oh, the one who walked around with everybody in the forest, right? Yes. He would, yes. Scharf. Sorry. Yes. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Hans Scharf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, he became an artist when he. He became an artist later. He yeah. Yeah, immigrated. U.S. Uh, mosaics he made. Yeah, the fascinating thing about Scharf is Scharf was not a professional. He was drafted in the army. He was mm -hmm. a business drafted in the army. He became now interrogator because the two people who had to help there, the Germans, they crashed down an airplane. So he now became an interrogator. He had a method that worked so well; it worked far better than any other uh, Germans. These professionals did that mm -hmm. after the war, because he in interrogated U.S. pilots that after the war, uh, he was invited to come to the U.S. to speak how he did it, how he managed to do that. And now 80 years later, and now there's research about the Scharf technique, showing how effective that technique is. And that's purely information gathering. 
And what Scharf did was go to the mind, indeed, of the suspects, of the people he was, he, he interviewed uh, US pilots. Go to the minds and what's going to, what, what do you think? And he thought what they were thinking about is, um, um, I, won't, I won't tell you much. So that's what he thought the pilots would do. I won't tell you much. I will try to figure out what you, Sharf, want to know from me, and I won't tell you that. But silly to uh, um, um, not to mention things you already know. So these were three things. His technique now was indeed around that. So what you will have, he was extremely uh, friendly. He was not pressing for any kind of information, not at all. And when he tried to get some information, he was never clear what he wanted, and certainly never asked. And for example, what he never did, he didn't ask, is it now, he knew there would be an attack in either city A or B. He wouldn't ask, is it now A or B? He didn't do that. But he did. He then said to these pilots, the attack will take place in A. And he looked at the, at the reaction. If the pilot confirmed, then okay, he knew it was A. If the fire pilot not confirmed that, he knew it was in B. And in both situations, the pilot did not think he gave information. This is like the Solomon question it's, isn't it interesting so we know that if you do, if you use sharp it leads to more information it leads to over uh, uh, estimation of what the interviewer knows it leads to an underestimation in what you yourself say and it leads in complete confusion about what the goals of the interview are sharp that is brilliant and that's far better than the retech come on so it's, it's a shame that the world is not just full of sharp it's, it's, it's read that is dominating it rather sharp it's a real shame well, okay, I, I'm definitely going to share that with you, and we've hit the hour, so I, I would love to have you look that over. Could I have you come back sometime with uh, some other experts? Yeah, you could. Okay, that would be fantastic. And for now, thank you so much. This this has been amazing. You're very welcome. I enjoyed it. Thanks so much for listening. And if you would like even more content and community, please consider joining my locals at unstructured.locals.com. And you can always find out more about me and my shows and everything I do at erichunley.com. See you next time.